Please turn in your Bibles this morning to Leviticus chapter 20. Be looking at verses 10 through 27. And our New Testament passage is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. So with your Bibles open to Leviticus chapter 20, in honor of God's word, please stand. Leviticus chapter 20, beginning in verse 10, hear God's word. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed perversion. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man takes a woman and her mother also, it is depravity. He and they shall be burned with fire, that there may be no depravity among you. If a man lies with an animal, he shall surely be put to death, and you shall kill the animal. If a woman approaches any animal and lies with it, you shall kill the woman and the animal. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man takes his sister, a daughter of his father, or a daughter of his mother, and sees her nakedness, and she sees his nakedness, It is a disgrace, and they shall be cut off in the sight of the children of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness, and he shall bear his iniquity. If a man lies with a woman during her menstrual period and uncovers her nakedness, he has made naked naked her fountain, and she has uncovered the fountain of her blood. Both of them shall be cut off from among their people. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister or of your father's sister, for that is to make naked one's relative. They shall bear their iniquity. If a man lies with his uncle's wife, he has uncovered his uncle's nakedness. They shall bear their sin. They shall die childless. If a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you, for they did all these things." And therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who have separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean, and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourself detestable by beast or by bird, or anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. A man or a woman who is a medium or a wizard shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. Thus far in the reading of God's word, turning to Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 18, and continuing in the reading of God's word. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words make the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion 
and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. As far in the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father, as we have read, we pray that you would open our hearts, open our ears, dig out for us ears, that we may hear your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. So there's a song that was released probably a couple of decades ago that I have referred to several times because the, the, the song itself is asking the question that I think is on everybody's mind, which is that when horrible things happen, where is God? Where is God in these injustices? And there's a, there's a lyric in this little song that says, I want to know where is God? Is he up in heaven bumping his iPod? And that's sort of this deus absconditus idea. The idea that God is utterly uncaring. That God does not enter into our life, the circumstances of the world around us. And surely, it's a legitimate question. It's a legitimate struggle. Psalm 80 is a psalm that ends with no hope, that simply ends with I'm abandoned. And it's the, 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 the cry of men and women and boys and girls. Where is God? Where is He in this situation? Where is He in this illness? Where is He in this political upheaval? Where is He? Drug addicts all around us. Broken homes. Vile, vile entertainments. Where is God? In our passage this morning, we will see both the horror of sin and also the holiness of God's people. It's a clear contrast that's painted for us here in our text. The horror of sin and the holiness of that God's people are called to. 
But we'll see also, thirdly, the means by which that holiness is cultivated. The horror of sin. You read the verses, you heard them. Disgusting. Betrayals. At the deepest and most intimate level. Family members. Horrible. Cruel. Betrayals of one another's. The perversions that are practiced. As you read through that list, I think from each one of us there arises a sense of outrage, a sense of disgust, a sense of these things we shouldn't even be talking about. And yet the fact of the matter is, as you well know, you can see these things trotted out. These and more. Trotted out on the internet, trotted out in our Netflix shows or Amazon Prime shows, trotted out and turned into entertainment. We can see the brokenness around us. The brokenness of men and women living here in the one of the wealthiest areas on the planet. Men and women outside in tents. Most often because of a horrible drug addiction, sometimes also combined with serious psychiatric problems, and no support, no family, no community, no thing to fall back on and rely on. It's a horrible reality. And it's a reality that sometimes we get a little immune to. Sometimes we get a little more used to than we should. Where's God? Is he up in heaven bumping his iPod? As God describes the practices of the people of the land, this passage, by the way, it, it breaks apart neatly, verses 23 and 24. Those are, those are the two central verses in this passage. Verse 23 is, all of this perversion is what the, the people of the land have practiced and why the land is going to vomit them out. This is the description of their society. And the land itself is disgusted by it. But then verse 24 is, I'm going to give you this land. And it's interesting, did you hear the words there, the land flowing with milk and honey? It's not flowing with milk and honey until God puts his people in it. He does not describe this as a land flowing with milk and honey. He describes it as a land filled with abomination and perversion. But once he has purged the abomination, once he has purged the perversion, and once he has brought his people in, then the land becomes a land flowing with milk and honey. 
But God is not disconnected from this iniquity. God is not disconnected. Because if you remember when we read through those verses, a lot of words came up there that describe God's attitude towards it. People are to be put to death. They are to be stoned. These things are abominations. These things are perversions. And these people that God spares their lives are going to live the rest of their lives childless. God will cut off their line. Does that sound to you like a deus abscontitus? Does that sound to you like a God who does not care? Does that sound to you like a God who looks at perversion and wickedness and sin and says, nothing I can do about it, or hope it all works out for you? God looks at the sinfulness, the horribleness of this abomination and calls it what it is. And he promises that he will cast out this darkness. He will purge this wickedness. He looks at sin and is enraged. You can certainly see that from the words in this, from God's response. This is not, again, a distant, unemotional response. God is enraged at the ways in which we are truly, truly horrible. Horrible to one another. And so not only is the land going to vomit out those who are given over to these perversions and more, but then God is going to populate this land with His own redeemed people. And He populates them with a holy people. In verse 24, We read, I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess. A land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who have separated you from the peoples. Notice, just pause and camp on that verse for a little bit. (laughs) Who is it who initiates? God does. God is the one who is not only going to judge. God is the one who has drawn his people out of Egypt. God is the one who is going to put his people in this land. God is doing his work. We read in the assurance of pardon that you and I don't work our way to God. We are God's work. And this is what God promises to do there in this land. But it's God's love that is the initiation. 
It is, it is the motivating factor, I should say. It's a, in, in the same way that God looks at the darkness and is full of hatred, fury, righteous anger, at, at all of the gross things that we do to each other, in the same way he is as intensely loving towards his people, so loving that he gave his only son, that anyone who believes in him should not perish, but should have everlasting life. So loving that he draws slaves out of Egypt, brings them to his holy mountain, declares them to be reconciled, and then says, I'm going to give you this beautiful land. It's the love of God that is front and center throughout this whole narrative. And that's what God commands of His people. What's the greatest law? What are the greatest commandments? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the laws and the prophets. Love. The love of God, initiated by God, set upon a people. And that people called to reflect His love in the way in which they treat one another. It's a sharp contrast. You you see a sharp contrast between the gross, the horrible, and the perversion, and what God calls His people to be. To have the idea that you shall love your neighbor as yourself written into the very constitution of a nation. What a light. What a beacon. What a beautiful thing that draws to himself. What he calls for from his people is not... Follow a list of rules. And we'll see in a minute, he speaks about keeping his statutes. But, but beloved, and especially young people, because this was my struggle. I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up in a godly home. And in my head, Christianity was basically, we don't smoke, we don't chew, and we don't go with those who do. It was a list of rules. The Sabbath, when I was a child, the Sabbath meant mom and dad take a nap and I'm not allowed to play outside. That was the Sabbath. <laughs> Clearly not a heart. And my parents, this is not on my parents at all. <laughs> this is 100% my problem. <laughs> it's love. It's love that is at the heart. It's God's love set on you. And you, in response, reflecting that love back to Him. And reflecting that love to one another. That is the way in which you and I are separated from the nation. 
That's the way in which you and I are separated from the culture around us. As you see men and women striving for justice in our social arena, in our political sphere, in our public life, as you see men and women striving for justice, would you say that love is a common denominator? If you would say so, I'd love to know who you are watching (laughs) or listening to. Because what I hear in politics, what I hear in commentaries on, on events of the day, what I hear chanted, has got very little to do with loving one another. It's got a lot to do with declaring this person evil and should be annihilated and this person righteous on whatever basis. Beloved, how much time, how much time is taken up in your regular day, in your entertainments, in your calling? How much of your time is taken up seeking to live in the face of God's love and seeking to share and reflect that divine love in our homes, in our neighborhoods and workplaces. And if you see this sharp contrast between verse 23 and verse 24, if you see this dramatic contrast, you see that it's nothing less than darkness versus light. It's nothing less then these are the works of darkness. And here is the work of the people of God. Loving Him and loving one another. Now quickly, let's look at the third point. Because here in this passage is the means by which this grace is built up in us. Because so far, what I have said to you, I think you could probably hear in any generic meeting of nice people. (laughs) I don't think it's controversial to say we should be loving. God is love. Yard signs that are out there, love is love. We all know about love. Love, 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 love. We should love, love, love. But how do we love? What is love? And he gives us the answer here in verses 25 through 27. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean, the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or anything upon which the ground crawls which I have set apart for you to hold unclean, you shall be holy to me. For I am the Lord, for I the Lord am holy, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. A man or a woman who is a medium or a wizard shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones, their blood shall be upon them. So we see here in these verses two ways 
in which that love of God is nourished. The second is that final verse. If you are going to be among the people of God, if you're going to be in God's presence, and you're going to say, yeah, I love God, but also, I've got this other thing on the side. I'm not 100% (laughs) devoted to God. I, I had a pastor years and years ago. He was, he was Korean. And one of the memorable things he used to say to me was 99% obedience is 100% disobedience. 99% obedience is 100% disobedience. 99% of your life is given to God. God says, that's not enough. There must be holiness. There must be a complete focus on me and me alone. Otherwise, that love becomes mingled with this nasty, with this gross that we've seen. There's a... There's a, there's a Focus exclusively on God. But the other, the, not only the devotion to God alone, but, but keeping his statutes. You see it in verse 22. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them. Now, here's where I got off track as a young person. Here's, here's where I got messed up. Because I thought when God said, keep all my rules and all my statutes, it just meant i got to do all the stuff. And after a while, I got tired of doing all the stuff. Because the other stuff sounded fun. (laughs) But I I just have to do all the stuff. Keep all my rules and all my statutes. Andrew Bonar gives a a beautiful uh, illustration. He says... The statutes, the rules, the organization, the structure of God's will for his people is the case in which the jewel of God's love and the people's love for one another is encased. it's, It's like a jewelry box. Now, husbands... Hand your wife an empty jewelry box and see her reaction. I promise you, when you first hand her that jewelry box, her eyes will light up. Oh, honey. And then she opens the jewelry box and discovers there's nothing in it. Her eyes will go a different direction. (laughs) And the oh, honey, will come out with a different tone. But isn't that what the Pharisees are? Isn't that what formalism is? Where we look at the form, we look at the structure, and we say, oh, that must be the jewel. That must be what it means to be a Christian. That must be what it it means to be a child of God. Someone who obeys their parents. Someone who doesn't, isn't harsh towards their children. Someone who doesn't tell a lie. Someone, 
all the things that you and I know. Someone who doesn't do all this garbage in, in the first section of our passage. That's what it means. No. No. That's the system. That's the case in which this jewel of love, God's love set upon you, your love of God reflecting back to Him and living out in your lives with one another. Now, just very briefly, I realize I'm long on time. But, and, and this, is, this is barring from Andrew Bonar. But the reason, I've, I've said this to some other people in a more one-on-one context, but, you know, here I am, 58 years old, God has a calling on my life to preach the gospel, didn't grow up in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, could have gone any direction, I live in a free country, I could have gone Roman Catholic, I could have gone Episcopal, I could have gone Anglican, any, independent, a number of ways I could have gone. I went this direction for two reasons. One is, I think it's the biblical form of government that we see. Presbyterianism, the rule of elders. But the reason that I think it's the biblical form of government is because what Presbyterianism is, is nothing less than intentionally placing yourself in accountability relationships. I am not the Pope of Sterling Presbyterian Church. I am accountable. I am accountable to my elders. And through that, to the congregation. When my elders call me out on something, or when people in the congregation call me out on something, my duty is to listen and to be accountable. But the other part is, so Presbyterianism is nothing more, nothing less, than accountability and support. We support our missionaries together collectively. We support our our home mission works. We're supporting Acacia. We're we're supporting one another. That's what a good, healthy church is. A good, healthy congregation is support and accountability. Holding one another accountable, encouraging one another, and supporting one another. Now, how many times do we get sidetracked and start thinking, I don't know, the, the, the building is the reason that we're all here together. Not this building, obviously, but you know what I mean. These, these beautiful historic church buildings that exist long after any gospel has dried up and blown away. Because they're just held together by this structure. It's the support and accountability that God says His statutes and His rules, the, the means that He gives for sacrifices and and for forgiveness when those statutes and rules are broken. But it's support and accountability that binds God's people together. And it binds God's people together through these statutes, rules. The clean and unclean animals there, 
in, in verse uh, 25. Birds and animals and clean and unclean. If you recall when we covered that section as to what was clean and unclean, I said, you know, God doesn't have something against rock badgers. It's not like rock badgers are morally horrible. They're his creatures. But he says they're unclean. God doesn't have anything against crickets. They're his creatures. God doesn't have anything against these unclean animals. God is giving to his people an opportunity for every moment of their day to be thinking, holy to the Lord, not holy to the Lord. Holy to the Lord in my field, not holy to the Lord in my field. Holy to the Lord in my home. Not holy to the Lord in my home. Holy to the Lord wherever I go, wherever I walk. Not holy to the Lord wherever I go, wherever I walk. And beloved, that, for the spiritually alive, that is a beautiful gift. Because every single decision, every single moment is an opportunity to look into your being and say, what's my goal? What's, what's my motivation? Is it my own pleasure? Is it, is it my reputation? Is it me getting ahead of the other person? Dog eat dog, all those things. Or is it love for God and love for one another? That case is helpful. To go back to the earlier illustration, if I want to hand my wife a ring with a chip of stone on it, if I just hand her the ring, I'm probably not going to get the same response as if it comes in a Tiffany box. (laughs) The box itself does make a difference. (laughs) And the structure in which this jewel is placed, absolutely makes a difference. But beloved, it is the jewel. And so, I exhort you. First off, as we consider the horribleness of sin, see in your own heart the seeds of all those things. See in your own heart I mean, these are horrible perversions. But beloved, they all began in someone's heart. Someone being given over to lust. Someone justifying their actions. Someone saying, oh, it's not really that bad. All those things spring forth as the poisonous seed of truly a hideous darkness. But beloved, do not walk away from this passage and do not walk away from this moment without also seeing what it is that Jesus Christ bore on the cross. All this hideousness and more. Paul says, such were some of you. This is what Jesus bore on the cross. It's not some fine moral example. 
It is you and me, gross, perverted, disgusting. He bore that. He bore your sin. Beloved, the mind boggles. But when you see that one who has crushed this very serpent, this serpent that is horrible, the one who has crushed the head of this very serpent, beloved, you see his and your victory. Your rescue. You don't have to be here in your heart. You don't have to be here in your thinking. And you most certainly don't have to be here in your actions. Because you are purchased with a price. Therefore glorify God with your body and with your soul, which are God's. He has prepared you, prepared good works for you beforehand that you and I may walk in them. This love that is set upon you, this darkness that is driven out before God's people, the darkness, the land vomits this garbage out. The darkness driven out, the love and the light of God coming in. This thankful people, rescued people, delivered people, given a land flowing with milk and honey, using every resource in that land to remind themselves of God and His holiness and and being separated only to Him, of loving one another, of caring for the stranger, of, of caring for all in their midst. This beautiful, beautiful image is nourished By the means of grace. These statutes and rules. Word, prayer, sacraments. Baptism, the Lord's Supper. Simple. It's very simple. But beloved, if you ever think simply showing up to church, praying a prayer, and taking the Lord's Supper is what God calls a Christian, You're missing the jewel. You're looking at the case. The jewel, beloved, is that God has redeemed you. He's redeemed you from this garbage. He set His love upon you. And He calls you to live holy before Him. And if you and I can ever really understand, and we will really understand a little bit this Sunday and next Sunday and the one after until finally one day we see Him even as we are known by Him. But beloved, if you and I get a better taste, just a little better taste, look at the contrast between that horrible darkness and that glorious calling and know that it's here. It's here that we see this so so vividly portrayed. The tearing apart 
of his body. Ripped. This vileness is what this was for. This vileness that we've read is just a slice of why his body had to be torn. His blood had to be shed. Because, beloved, as I read that list, I'm infuriated. And I think any human being should be. But when I see that that's in me, oh, I need Jesus. And, beloved, so do you. We have it. We have it. His love set upon us. Almighty God, we thank you for the clarity with which you see evil, the horribleness that humanity is capable of, the disgust that you look upon our sin with. We wonder that you should reach out to us, that you should place all of this garbage on your beloved Son, in whom you are well pleased. But Lord, the wonder that you should redeem us, nourish us, strengthen us, and Father, help us to walk in love for you and love for one another. In Christ's name, amen.